Good day again. Shalom. This is Rabbi Richard Address, the host of uh, our Secrets of Meaning podcast series, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Thank you for joining us. Um, this is part of uh, a series of podcasts that we're talking about as we approach the high holidays and the month of Elul and this turning of our own souls in introspection. And we're talking, taking a look at some of the theological implications of these holidays for us. And we're pleased to announce and again remind you that Seekers of Meaning is brought to you by um, bookbaby.com. And this is an announcement for those of you out there. There may be one or two of you who are contemplating publishing your own book. You're writing your own book. You have a manuscript that you really don't know what to do with and you want to publish it, but don't know quite how to do that. Book Baby provides all the creative services like editing, designing, formatting, printing, and most notably, they help you, the writer, become authors by managing the production, distribution, and payment processing for independent authors. And if you'd like more information about how to get involved with Book Baby and publishing your own book, their phone number is 877 961 6878. That's 877-961-6878. Or go visit them on the web at www.bookbaby.com. In our conversations in Elul about theology, we are very pleased to welcome to this edition of Secrets of Meeting, uh, Rabbi Toba Spitzer, the rabbi of Dorshe Tzedek in Newton, Massachusetts, the author of this uh, very, I don't know whether you can see this with the Lights, God is Here, subtitled Reimagining the Divine, a very, very interesting and exciting new work. Toba, welcome to Seekers of Meaning. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank, thank you, and thanks for having me. This is very, very interesting. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy that you're with us. Um, lots to talk about. Uh, the odds are we won't get through the page and a half of notes that I have from reading the book. But let me get started with a real simple, basic softball question that you sort of like look at at the beginning of the book. Why do we need to believe in something? How do we need to believe in something? I, I just, you know, I think we do. You know, I think we all have values. We all um, have assumptions about how the universe works. Um, so ultimately, it's really a question of what are we putting at the center of our lives? And then, you know, around what are we orienting our lives? Not do I believe this or do I not believe this? When it comes to God specifically, I, my hope in the book is to really reframe the question from one of belief to one of experience. So while on the one hand, I do believe that there are belief systems that, you know, that shape us and maybe in, in the terms of cognitive linguistics, there's frames through which we view reality. When it comes to the sacred, I'm making a, an assumption that I think is, is pretty valid that human beings at all times and all places have had experiences of the divine of the sacred, of holiness, however you want to call it. Even those who consider themselves secular have had those moments, those experiences, and we need language for it. And so my, and the contention of the book is that some of the metaphors that we've used to frame that is, are difficult for people, uh, some of the God language and God concepts. And that because of those difficult concepts, people have said, well, then I'm just not spiritual, or I can't have access to that, or I'm just going to leave, you know, Jewish practice or any kind of religious practice because it's, it's not meaningful to me. And then sort of throws out the baby with the bathwater, and we've got all this wonderful practices and teachings in our in our sacred texts. And the book is not just for Jews, although I use primarily Jewish texts um, to explore it. And it's the attempt to really come up with an, a new language and an, uh, the, the the analogy I use a, a menu, a, a different menu right. 
uh, for for us. So that's so so I don't know if that's a that's a broad answer to your question, but I think that's sort of that's no, the no, thinking no, that, that, is, that led me to write the book. Yeah, it because when you use the phrase a new language, um, both in last week's uh, podcast um, with Rabbi Kotak and Reverend McCall, and next week's podcast with uh, a couple of other colleagues. They're all talking about the necessity in 2022 to perhaps create a new language. Everybody's using the same phrase, a new language around theology. So, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this book, because you, you really talk about the framework of metaphor, which is fascinating. But first, I got to ask you to define a phrase you use. And it's also in the book. You, you, it, it we introduce, you introduce this phrase, I think on page eight. Um, Cognitive linguistics, cognitive linguistics. Now I live down here near Philly. Things are, there's, you know, we got to keep things real simple uh, for us <laughs> Phillies fans. Um, what is cognitive linguistics? So I'll tell you, I'm a lay person in that field. So I'll tell you my understanding of it. Um, yeah. And as a, not a linguist. So my understanding of the field is that it's based in the work of primarily, uh, but not solely, uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, who in 1980 published a book called Metaphors We Live By. And their contention as linguists was that human brains cannot function without metaphor. And when we interact with the world, we're using metaphor unconsciously. Um, and some of the metaphors are very, we actually know that we're using, but usually we're using metaphor and not knowing it. Um, so, uh, a very basic metaphor is I see what you mean, uh, which comes from a, a very early infant experience where if you don't see something, if the baby doesn't see something, it doesn't exist. So seeing is knowing is a conceptual metaphor in their system. So it, it, it's a field of linguistics. They explore this by looking at how we speak. But later in the nineties with neuroscience, scientists started seeing that our brains are actually, it's actually shaping our brains. So uh, one example in a book I read said that when we use the metaphor to kick a habit, that the part of our brain that activates our body to kick something is actually activated. That part of our brain is activated when we use that phrase. So the neurons are, are, are connecting. So cognitive linguistics, my understanding is, at least this part, the metaphor piece of it, I don't know the whole field, but is how language shapes not just our speech, but our experience and, and, and the use of metaphor in that. So the contention of the book is that usually when we're arguing about God, when we're having arguments about does God exist? Can God do this? Does God make sense? You know, why does bad why do bad things happen to good people? All of these classic sort of theological questions I'm suggesting are not really questions about God. They're questions about a metaphor that's implicit. Even if we don't believe it, it's in our brains, which is God is a big person. And once you're in that metaphor of God is a big person, it just shapes not just our our you know our our liturgy or our sacred text. It actually shapes our experience of the divine. And what I found was that if I looked in our, you know, our Jewish tradition specifically, we have so many other metaphors and they lift up other aspects of our experience. They make other questions possible and they make certain questions not relevant anymore. So cognitive linguistics is basically, I'm, I'm inviting people to, to take seriously metaphor for, for our purposes um, and, to, and to take seriously the role that metaphor plays in how we ex engage with the world. So let me, let's, let's examine perhaps in the high holiday liturgy, the great metaphor. And you write about this in the book, the Unitana Toka. Mm -hmm. Walk us through, you know, the Unitana Toka, because many of us have taught this as metaphor. Um, 
but walk us through how you approach it within the book. Right. So Bunatan Tokif is both an incredible poem and problematic, you know, and it actually uses a lot of different, it's a poem and it quite consciously uses different metaphors. It, it, you know, it begins with God on a throne, seated on a throne. So implicitly God is a, a ruler of some sort. Um, then it shifts to a metaphor of writing. It's a little unclear who's doing the writing, whether God's doing the writing or we're doing the writing, but all of a sudden, you know, the divine is related to having our fate written down in some way. And then the next thing we know, God is a shepherd, you know, and uh, with all, with, with what that means, either counting sheep or caring for sheep. Um, and, and then sort of the images for God actually disappear. And then we're just left with this sort of confrontation with our, with our mortality, you know, what, what will happen in the new year. Um, and then in the end, it sort of shifts again. We have sort of this notion that God's name, that there's no end to the divine and that its name is our name. So it, it moves through all kinds of different metaphors. If you really unpack it on a literary level, unfortunately, I think the, the metaphorical impact, if we walk into the sanctuary and we're operating in this frame and the, and the word frame is a cognitive linguistics word, meaning it's a literally a frame. It's, it, shapes how we experience reality and how we see reality. If we walk into the sanctuary and in our brains, whether we like it or not, is God is a big person, it's very hard for people to hear the Unatana Tokef and not hear there's some God up there writing down, sort of like Santa Claus, you know, who's been good, who's been bad, and deciding what's going to happen to me in the new year. I actually don't think that's what the Unatana Tokef is saying at all. But if we're in that frame, it's very hard to hear it. Um, not with that way. And I do know people just walked out of the sanctuary. They just, they can't bear it. They're like, well, that means that my brother who got a terrible illness and died was a bad person. Right. And that's ridiculous. So I, I can't take this. So what, you know, what, what starts is a, a sort of a poem and a literary evocation of standing before the universe and standing before the reality of our own mortality, which is true, becomes because of the, this very constricting metaphor of God as a big person becomes a theological, you know, roadblock for people. So that, you know, and it is true, the High Holiday Liturgy is full of God as ruler and God as king. But again, it's not the only metaphor in there, and it's not the only metaphor accessible to us. And one thing I've done at our synagogue is write, and it's available on our website, just write, written up a sheet that I have available out for people to pick up with different metaphors that invite people in. You know, another name we use during uh, Kol Nidre is Rahamana, God is the compassionate one, as the womb. Beautiful metaphor, very different than a king on a throne, you know, judging us. So the, you 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 expand that and move that. You quote um, James Kugel, uh in one of his books about um, the belief in God versus the experience of God. Yeah, which I which I think is you know some many people who have been trained you know perhaps academically will say you know I I can't I have to believe I have to have proof vis a vis I'm experiencing something of the numinous, of the sacred, of, I can't necessarily explain it. I can't necessarily prove it. Um, but you also write uh, somewhere in, in this conversation that people say, you know, I don't believe in God or prove to me that God exists. Then you write, God exists like love exists. Uh, the experience. Could you walk me through, just unpack that a little bit about that, that, yeah. that, that, that confrontation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this is in the early chapters when I try to explore a little bit about another claim of cognitive linguistics is that we can't locate reality completely outside of us or completely inside us. You know, that as humans, we encounter the world through our brains. Um, 
And what we understand as reality, what we experience as reality, really what reality is, is some interaction of our bodies, we're embodied beings, our brains and reality out there. And, and, and I, you know, and color is one example, like color, it, you know, light, we only know color because of our eyes and the way our eyes work and light, you know, reflecting off of surfaces. And then we get this, the spectrum of light and light. I mean, it exists, colors exist, but I can only know color through my, you know, my body, my, my senses, how other creatures experience color. I have no idea. It's probably quite different than me. Um, so that's a good example. Does color exist? Yes. How do I know it? How do I talk about it? How do I experience it? You know, that's, that's limited by my, by, by my body. So that's more in the scientific realm. Time is another good example. Time exists. We can make mathematical equations about it, but how a human being experiences time is completely limited by our minds, our brains, our bodies. Um, so I put love in that category. I, I, most people have experienced love in some form. There's so many types of love. If I said to you, you know, Richard, prove to me that, you know, your mother loved you or, you know, or that you love whatever, you can't prove that to me. You, you'd give me, you tell me story. I've done this with third graders. I'd probably tell me how you, tell me that your mother loves you. Prove it to me. And they tell me stories. Well, she tucks me in at night. She does this. She does that. Um, so I sort of put the sacred or God or the divine, however you want to call it, in that category. It's a, it's a key component of human experience. It has shaped human beings forever. I think it's real. Um, and we can only know it through our bodies and our minds. And therefore, we need metaphor. Um, and proof, I don't know, the whole proving thing seems to have been sort of a Christian scholastic exercise beginning sometime in the Middle Ages. <laughs> I, I, I'm not really interested in that. I don't, I don't think it's particularly Jewish, to be honest. I feel like, you know, our texts don't go around proving, you know, God. But they make some, I mean, the rabbis say, there's a very, pretty early midrash, I think, where the rabbis say, you know, God says, you are my witnesses. And if you were not my witnesses, dot, 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 they don't even finish the sentence. But to me, it's the rabbis implying, you know, what is the divine without our experience of it? You know, the other midrashim say we were created in order to witness, you know, so there's something about our experience of the divine that is key to what the divine is. And if people want to say, well, that means it's just a thought in our heads, I, I would say no. I would say it's more than that. It, um, it, it, it shapes us. Um, it's something to draw upon. I've, you know, we, like you said, we can't always give it clear words, but it's something we've experienced. Um, and our only way to it is through metaphor, through language, you know, through ritual, through our senses. That's the only way we can access it. Yeah, we found in the work that we do at Jewish Sacred Aging, this, this explosion of ritual creative mm -hmm. rituals as we're living longer and experiencing new life stages mm -hmm. that people say, you know, I, I'm experiencing this. I never thought I'd live this long. I want something to mark it, to denote it, to, to embrace it. Um, and they, and there's this explosion of ritual. You talk, I mean, the book is really as, as you keep saying and reminding, this is why it's so important, this idea of metaphor. And you talk about some of the classic metaphorical systems within within Jewish tradition, like um, uh, the concept of Mayim, of water, and uh, and the idea of Hamakom, one of the names of God, the place, and Hakol, the voice. These are, I mean, these are classic, and it's filled with a liturgy. And in the High Holidays, as well as uh, Shabbat and Yom Tov in literature, talk to me about the, these these phrases, especially um, the idea of water, which is a transformational symbol in in various cultures, but, but specifically in us, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, so I sort of discovered, and I sort of stum- literally stumbled across a book in a bookstore about cognitive linguistics. I started thinking about metaphor, and I was like, hmm, so what other metaphors are available to us? You know, and I just started exploring, and I was really actually surprised, like, water is one of the dominant metaphors for the divine in, in the Hebrew Bible, in, in the Tanakh. Um, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, it's less an explicit metaphor of the divine, but it's very central. I mean, you know, the Torah is written by people who live in a desert region. It's not surprising that water you know, is sustaining and, and life-giving. So it's, you know, in the, in the chapter on water, I, I explore all the things that water means in the Torah. And then in the later books of the, of the Bible, especially some of the prophets and the Psalms, God is very explicitly uh, linked to water. And there are what, what I would call water names of God, Makor Mayim Chaim, you know, the, the, the fount of living waters, Peleg Elohim, river of God, Nachal um, Adanecha, the river of your bliss. I mean, and, and I realized, you know, these aren't just, this aren't just literary phrases. This isn't just nice poetry. I think our ancestors called God by these names. And I think water is a very powerful way to experience the divine. And in each, um, so in the book, I, you know, I have a chapter on the different metaphors. Most are, most are from nature. And that's, I think we share that with all religious and spiritual traditions. You know, that's, you know, the, the created world is where the divine manifests. Um, and I have practices to try to, you know, to connect that. You know, it, I live on the East Coast, you know, even though we're in a little bit of a drought right now in Boston, there's a lot of water, so we tend to take it for granted. So how do we reconnect to this? So uh, one of the things I'll, I'll say about metaphor is that in what I learned from cognitive linguistics is that a metaphor has to be grounded in an embodied experience. So, um, so we start with our physical experience, you know, Water is so many things. It's nourishing. It's life sustaining. It's dangerous, right? <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's potentially overwhelming. It's something we need to navigate. There's so many aspects of it. So I start knowing water because I am a human being and I encountered water my whole life. And then it makes it very easy to apply that to the realm of the divine. And I think this is important because I think the, when the only metaphor for the difficult is God is a big person. We tend to have questions like, why is God doing this to me? Or you know, why is this happening to me? Because we're assuming that there's a person out there hurting us. Mm-hmm. But when we try something like water, it's like, well, I know water's dangerous. I know water is both life-giving and can drown me. And I, the example I give in the book is when you know my, my spouse was, was dying of cancer and I had to sit with it. And I, there was a chant that talked about you know not being overwhelmed by the water. And that was so much more useful to me. So instead of sitting there thinking like, why is this happening to me or to her? I was thinking, wow, this is really overwhelming right now. And I know there is the divine, I can still access the divine in this moment. How do I find it? You know, where, where is God in this? How do I navigate this really difficult situation? Which I personally find a much more useful question than why is this happening to me? I mean, questions aren't good or bad. I just think they're helpful or unhelpful. Like, why is this happening to me? Is not, <laughs> I don't find a particularly helpful question. How do I navigate this? Wow, that's a really helpful question. Right, right. Um, you know, and that's where ritual comes in. That's where, you know, so I feel like, you know, when we shift the metaphor, we shift the questions we're asking, and we shift the answers we might receive. And that's really powerful. It's also, I think you, you mentioned this towards the end of the book about um, individuals have a series in their life of um, spiritual choice points, the, the, the Bihira, you call it, or you refer mm-hmm. to it. But that's the, you know, why is this happening to me? Or how can I, how can I make certain choices that will allow me to deal with this? Those are some of those choice points. Um, you elaborate the idea of metaphor. Um, you, you channel Exodus three with the Ehiyah, Asher Ehiyah, and this idea of, um, 
uh, uh, God is this process of becoming. I mean, you, which is channeling your Mordecai Kaplan, <laughs> which is cool. Um, but it also shifts. Talk to me a little bit how you, how you understand the Ehia Asher Ehia, because it's very, very powerful chapter. It's a very great chapter. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, before I discovered the metaphor theory, I was really into process theology, which is mostly a Christian theology, although there, there are some Jewish uh, folks who've written about it, Jewish theologians. And it does, I don't think, he wasn't exactly a process theologian, but Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, definitely was influenced, I think, by um, Alfred North Whitehead, who was the founder of, of process thought. Um, but it's ancient, right? It's, it's in our text, this notion that God is not a thing, not a being. Um, and, and this chapter is a little bit different than the other chapters where I focus a little more on sort of physical experience like uh, water, rock, place that, that you mentioned. But I think the notion of God as a process or as becoming is in our text, and it's, it's quite explicit there in, you know, when, when Moses gets that answer, right? Who are you? Who is this God talking to me? And the answer is, I will be that I will be. That's pretty wild. Um, and process theology really quite beautifully talks about um, the divine as the source of potential and possibility in the world, that if there wasn't something that makes this moment different than the moment that just passed, we would just be continually repeating ourselves, repeating things. And the founder of process thought, Alfred North Whitehead, who was a mathematician and a philosopher and an atheist who then became, come up with his own idea of what God was in the early 20th century, said, well, if there is something in the universe that, you know, allows for newness, that that's the divine. The di divine is the potential for newness in, in, in the universe, um, which I find very, very beautiful and, and compelling. So in that chapter, I explore becoming, you know, what does it mean to be becoming? How do we continue to become? How do we you know, what does it mean to know that I, I also, there's also certain constraints I have. I can't become you and I can't become a frog and I can't become a tree. Like I can only become a better Toba. You know, how do I do that? Um, and I feel like our tradition is quite adamant that we are accompanied by the divine in that endeavor, that God wants us in some way to become our best selves. Um, and that's what God says to Moses. That's what yud Vafe says to Moses at the bush, like, imach, this power of becoming will be with you when you go on this incredible journey to liberate a people. There is something divine that will accompany you in that. We're speaking with Rabbi Tobit Spitzer, the author of a recently published book, God is Here, Reimagining the Divine, the book available, um, imagine, at many, many bookstores, as well as the great god Amazon. Uh, and, Go to um, bookshop.org. I like to promote independent books. You can get it at bookshop.org. Yeah, bookshop.org. And speaking of yeah. books, I, I, before we conclude, I want to, the last thing I want to ask you about is this really a wonderful image of the gps mm. so um but because we're talking about books there again back to some of you who may have a manuscript and and want to know what to do with it and since we are people of the book a reminder from um a book baby that self-publishing isn't a one-size-fits-all solution if you have your own set of goals so reaching them requires a unique set of tools book babies Custom packages make it easier to decide what your book needs and provide it all in one convenient order. They've helped thousands of authors publish successfully and will be by your side throughout the entire process. Again, if you'd like to check out Book Baby and talk to somebody about publishing your own manuscript, give them a call at 877-961-6878. That's 877-961-8678. And their website, www.bookbaby.com. That's bookbaby.com.
you have this wonderful image in the book, the GPS. Now, some of us computer uh, challenge people know that if I eventually I can talk to somebody in there and they'll tell me how to get from point A to, to, to point B. But your J- GPS is the godly processing system. Positioning. Did I get the that right? I hope. System, yes. <laughs> godly positioning system. So right. what is the godly yeah. positioning system? It's great. I mean, I, I read I was yeah, I, I, it. It's great. <laughs> right. Well, I just, you know, as I was writing the book, I was like, I want to do one chapter that's about, you know, more modern metaphors, not just the, these ancient ones. And I, there are two in the last chapter. So one is electricity. Uh, the other is, is GPS. I, you know, I don't know exactly what started uh, uh, me thinking about this, but I realized that I think, you know, there are these moments when we wish there was some voice on the dashboard, like, you know, telling us exactly where to go. Right. You know, it doesn't really happen that way, at least not for me, but, um, you know, not not physically where to go. In, but so I I sort of doing a little research on what you know GPS is and, and there are these different pieces of it. Right. There's the actual locational system. There's the first that you have to know where you are. And then there's this idea that our device is like pinging off of satellites so that I know where I am. Um, and that connects, I think, in our tradition to you know, over and over in, in, in Tanakh, in Hebrew Bible, especially in the Torah, these moments where someone says, Hineni, here I am, like before we can do anything sort of on a spiritual path, we have to know where we are. So that's the first step in godly positioning system. The second is the map, right? right? The only way the GPS works is that somebody has put in all these maps. Sometimes the maps are wrong and you end up in a field. I've had that experience, you know? And I think that was an interesting metaphor for our religious systems, you know, because like maps, they have to be constantly updated, right? There's parts of our tradition that are painful, that are not helpful, and we either have to like erase that part of the map, or re, you know, re, readjust it, or, or rewrite it in some way, because we can only get from here to there if we have a good map, and, and that becomes practice, that becomes tradition, that becomes ritual, right? Rituals that you just talked about, those are that, those are maps that get us where we want to get to. And finally, things like uh, Google Maps or Waze or other systems have um a feature where, where users can put in, you know, information real in real time. Oh, there's a, you know, there's a police car up ahead. Slow down. Oh, there's a, you know, traffic accident. Oh, the, so there's this constant updating. And that I think for me was a beautiful metaphor of, of spiritual community. You know, like we, we don't do this alone. There, there really are no spiritual religious traditions where you're off by yourself. I mean, you might be sitting by yourself, but somehow in some way you, you are supported by tradition. You are supported by others doing the practice around you. I'm about to go on a silent retreat. I will be in a room with a hundred people not speaking. We're not talking to each other, but we're supporting each other. So, you know, my congregation is, is that kind of a community. So this last aspect is sort of, I'm not traveling this road alone. So GPS to me is a beautiful metaphor for the, for the spiritual path and, and, you know, and, and for, you know, a, a path of practice as well as, you know, as well as, uh, you know, sort of spiritual nur- nurturing. And in truth, you know, uh, with the high holidays coming up, uh, that's perhaps the ultimate GPS yeah. within our tradition. Um, right, the metaphor of turning, right. How, right. Am, I, am I on the right path? Do I need to like right. adjust, make some radical course correction because I'm on the wrong path? It's, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. It, it fits, that's why I, I wanted to make sure that you, you talked about it because it really does fit everything. Yeah. Rabbi Tobias Spitzer, um, thank you very, very much. This is uh, good luck with the book. Um, thank you. Uh, and just stay safe and stay healthy. I, I appreciate your time. Um, and just be well, be well. Thank, Thank you, for you so your much. Time. And great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And to all of you who have joined us today on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, thank you very much for joining us. Again, um, a reminder of our sponsor, uh, bookbaby.com is the website. Check it out. Uh, 
so that you can, if you have a manuscript that you would like, and I thank you, I thank them for their sponsorship. By the way, if, if you would like to become a sponsor of these podcasts, please get a hold of me. Feel free to email me at rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. You can also check out the website, jewishsacredaging.com and the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page. Again, we thank you for your time and um, we look forward to joining you with you at the next Seekers of Meeting. And a big shout out before we conclude to our producer, Steve Lubetkin, because the Seekers of Meaning are produced at the broadcast centers of Lubetkin Media Companies here in bucolic, gorgeous, lovely Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And thank you again, Steve. To all of you, thank you again for joining us. We look forward to you seeing you at our next Seekers of Meaning. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, be kind to one another. Shalom.